So uh, I've uh, known uh, Dr. Hodgson for most of my career, I guess, 30 years, but I've never studied his CV before. So it's, uh, it was really fun to uh, kind of study his remarkable career. Uh, he actually started his career in Germany, uh, where he received his medical de degree from the University of Frankfurt and spake, speaks German much better than I do. Uh, he um, started his postgraduate training as well uh, in Germany with a year rotating, another year in neurology, and a year uh, as a house officer in surgery uh, before he came to the U.S. to train and complete his training in internal medicine at the Washington VA uh, medical Center, uh, but then he found his true calling and went on to complete his fellowship in occupational medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, he went on to work at uh, the CDC's uh, NIOSH, or National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, as a senior scientist in the office of the director and also as an epidemic uh, intelligence uh, senior uh, service officer. Over the course of his academic career, uh, he's had faculty positions at uh, multiple institutions, including West Virginia University, School of Medicine, the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and the University of Connecticut, where he directed the occupational uh, medicine residency program. Uh, his academic contributions have included having edited a couple of books, authoring or co-authoring over 100 peer-reviewed publications on a range of topics uh, with a particular interest in uh, bioaerosols and infection control. Um, and he's practiced medicine in uh, VA uh, in, in both Washington, D.C. and Pittsburgh, and has served as a consultant and medical director of uh, occupational safety and health for several organizations including the United Steelworkers International Union. Um, at the Veterans Health Administration, uh, he led occupational health activities overseeing employee health, if you can imagine this job, at over 140 hospitals uh, and their employees for 14 years. Before beginning his current uh, job uh, in 2013, he tells me this is the job he has wanted his entire career, where he now serves as the chief medical officer and director of the Office of Occupational Medicine and nursing within the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, with this career, he's also received uh, multiple awards uh, for his work, including um, the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary's Distinguished Service Award and an advocacy award for caregiver safety from the Safer Patient Handling uh, and Movement Conference of the American uh, Nurses Association. So when you think about safe patient handling, uh, Dr. Hodgson was instrumental in bringing this to the VA and really a lot of the ergonomic approaches uh, used to protect uh, the, as I learned, 75,000 nurses uh, in the VA system. So very delighted to have you here, Michael, to talk to us about uh, our occupational health and safety as healthcare workers. Um, thanks, Bob. And I, th I turned the mic on. I'm hoping people in the back can hear. Yeah, okay. And um, it's always interesting to hear your career laid out in the way your grandmother would want to hear that. <laughs> um, Bob asked me to, um, so the, the, actually, right, let me ask, who here has some VA affiliations, has either rotated through the VA or is uh, WC or for, okay, so actually about half. Um, and how many of you are medical students? Any? No. Okay. So um, Bob asked me to talk about the overlap of patient safety and employee safety, a topic that in different systems is viewed in very different ways. Those of you who have interacted with Kaiser may remember their three safeties initiative where they tried to do environmental safety, patient safety, and employee safety in a single, you know, merge those initiatives. And lots of systems have, shall we say, mucked around with that and not necessarily gotten very far. And so Bob, I think, had asked me to try and give an overview of how some organizations have conceptualized that. I was fortunate at the VA to um, join them in 99 when Jim Bajan, who 
many people recognize as a, a major figure in patient safety in the U.S., became the, head of the, fir the first head of the National Patient Safety Center at the VA. There were four pre-existing local centers here, one, one in Tampa, one in Palo Alto, blocking right now on the fourth in Michigan, maybe. Um, but they hadn't aligned, and there wasn't really a formal effort at making employee and patient safety work together. So what I'm going to try and do today is present an overview of the, the work related, the occupational hazards. So from you know, our perspective as occupational physicians, characterize the overlaps with patient safety, and then think about the role of enforcement, various enforcement approaches, the Joint Commission and OSHA, and the different philosophies that those have and the consequences. For those of you who, um, um, who deal with this on a daily basis, you know, what do we know about hazards in healthcare and how dangerous is it really? Um, we forget that there is a long list of stuff that can happen. Um, with hepatitis B vaccination accessibility, one of the great public health success stories, one of the great occupational health success stories, um, came to pass over the last 25, 35 years. There was a time where 30% of dialysis technicians, I worked as a dialysis tech in medical school, um, had hepatitis B. Chronic active hepatitis was a healthcare worker disease in the 50s and 60s before Blumberg recognized the antigen and then the vaccine was made. And the World Health Organization shied away from acknowledging it as a sexually transmitted disease because it didn't want healthcare workers to be discriminated against. No longer an issue. We don't give it to patients. Patients don't give it to us. Um, but so there's a range of hazards, um, the infectious ones, in healthcare, most people recognize hepatitis B is the prototype on the bloodborne pathogen standard from OSHA, you know, mandated that every employer hand out that vaccine. If you remember back then, the dentists didn't want to do that because they weren't putting anybody at risk. Um, and back then, not everybody wore gloves. Um, the HIV years, people who trained in the 80s and early 90s remember the uncertainties around that. More recently, Ebola. Think about Presbyterian in Texas and what they did or did not do and what they could have done and the consequences for healthcare workers. APIC, who follows APIC religiously? How religiously do we follow hand washing and what are the consequences for us? Um, there are chemical exposures, um, hazardous drugs and cleaning agents. When you think about the pharmacy world, the cytotoxic drugs on the wards, the spill cleanup procedures, turns out that up to 5% of, um, of nursing, actually close to 5% of nurses on the wards excrete biological indicators of absorbed drug. How important that is remains unclear, but the Harvard Nurses study shows they are still dying at extra at higher rates of cancer than um, we would like. Ergonomic and mechanical issues, um, that's usually less of an issue for physicians because we tend not to get so involved in patient transfer, although having started out as a nursing assistant um, in medical school for money on the side, I remember what that was like, and as an intern trying to do a code on a 350-pound patient um, and trying to move that person around, there are injuries that happen. And that was actually my introduction at the VA to this issue. We did, when I was uh, on sabbatical at NIOSH, we did a joint conference with the VA Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, as it was called back then, and OSHA on the joint on the effect of working conditions on patient care. And Audrey Nelson, <clears throat> whom, actually, are there any nurses in the room? Yeah, so Audrey Nelson, who is, um, for many of us, um, we think of her as, as the, the inventor of this. She, although there are people who had done this before, she as a friendly freight train had, when she graduated from her PhD program and went to her hospital director and said, so what do you want me to do now? He said to her, 
fix my back pain problem. I don't want anything else but do that. Audrey started that project in 1998, 2000. She presented her model um, at the first of these conferences. And 2001 to 2003, there was a pilot in one of the regions, Florida, South Georgia. We did a national survey in 2005 and um, then got $208 million from a Republican OMB to put a ceiling lift over every bed in the VA. So that is really, um, you know, that was Audrey's kind of work. Physical hazards. Physical hazards, radiation we recognize. Um, leukemia in radiologists was one of the first Rec well-recognized hazards. Um, who knows what the noise levels in pediatric ICUs are? I mean, how many of you have been in a pediatric ICU, actually? So the rest of you wouldn't know that. But the noise levels, when you're close to an incubator, they can be up in the range of 110 decibels. Infant screaming can cause acute barotrauma. Um, and we forget that. Um, violence, workplace assaults, um, one of the things that um, the Joint Commission has talked about for years with a range of effect, you know, from incivil behavior through actual assaults. Um, in the VA system, as the saying went, all our patients were trained killers. So we had to think about this in a very structured way. And then the whole organization of work. How do we think about staffing? How do we think about shift work? When we think about staffing ratios, um, do we plan um, for the right mix of skills between, for example, nursing assistants, licensed practical nurses, registered nurses, independent practitioners, physicians, at the house officer level, as we plan, um, and I guess there was a study here not too long ago about how it really doesn't matter if you make residents work more than whatever the Joint Commission says. I remember I wasn't so sharp after 36 hours, but that might have just <laughs> been me. And then the issue in organization of work, um, how do you plan those? People who have followed the CDC problems around lab safety may remember that the CDC failed to include their scheduling considerations around science in the labs in their mandatory management meetings. And so people couldn't follow the established protocols in the lab and still do what they had to do to meet Steve Frieden's requirements. And so that led to some huge biosafety problems that led to people leaving and being fired. So these issues are happen to us all, and the question is, what are, are they a problem? Really a problem? Really still? So data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Department of Labor from 1989 to 2011, the data collection system and categories changed that year, but clearly major declines, somewhere between a you know, 50 and 70% <clears throat> decline in different industry sectors, hospitals, manufacturing, construction, and the U.S. national average. But look at the U.S. national average, this blue line and the red line of hospitals. What a surprise. Healthcare has twice the rate of U.S. national and even of manufacturing. More recently, it's not so bad. So from 2011, although you have to remember this is now compressed, and these four years are the equivalent of, you know, um, from 2007 to 2011. But the slope still looks um, a lot less. Um, and when you look at all industry at the bottom, and then hospitals and residential facilities, um, hospitals and residential facilities, you know, things continue to look like they're improving. Musculoskeletal injury rates since then, and we'll talk more about this at the end, um, in general seem to be going down except in agriculture and crop production. So you can, we, this isn't going to be a farming talk, but Bob, I'm sure, could do one. 
But let's think about assault rates. Um, some of you follow the Joint Commission or read those newsletters, and assault rates in different industries, crop production, construction. Um, well, it turns out that in hospitals and in um, residential facilities, they're not trivial. They are still pretty dramatic. And then when you look at subgroups of healthcare, you know, in general, and these are all cases per 10,000 workers, that's the new way we look at those rates. When you look at offices of physicians and, you know, regular hospitals, things are pretty okay until you get to residential care facilities, to residential mental health facilities, and to psychiatric hospitals, where there are clear problems. And there are standards of practice in the U.S. approved by the American Psychological Association that are violations of provincial law in Canada. So behavioral management programs, um, as we think of them as, you know, they were the Hastings Center 40 years ago said we should stop doing those. They're still approved practices. We don't have clinical practice guidelines for them. And the consequences for care delivery are huge. Um, so does that matter? Well, the costs, in general, the teaching is the cost of um, work-related disease and injuries about the range of diabetes in the US. So it's not the biggest problem we have. One should acknowledge that. But putting it into the context of not just this is workers' comp costs that a company, a healthcare center, um, can build into its business plan, but represents a national burden and for hospital directors and nursing units, you know, um, nursing managers represents a, a daily problem. So those data are interesting, but are those data accurate? You know, those of anybody who has lived in academics and thinks um, counting that quality of data is always suspect. Unless you have validation strategies, um, you don't really know much. And the VLS data are not validated. They are employer self-reported data. What information do we have that says those data are accurate? There aren't many. We know that under reporting of work-related disease and injury over the, since 1975, when the first paper on this was published through last year, suggests that between 95%, the first study, Dave Disher in California, looking at where physicians were fined $500 for not reporting, supposedly, nobody ever got fined, but that was the California law, to last year where several studies of amputations found a range between a reporting of 50 to 92%. Um, there is evidence that there is some underreporting, but is that a national problem? So the RAND Corporation, one of the last federally funded research and development companies, and the last not-for-profit of those, looked at the relationship of fatal to non-fatal injuries on a state-by-state -state basis. So this is the fatal injury rate. So, sorry, this is the fatal injury rate. Fatalities per 25,000 population. And this is the non-fatal injury rate, the rate that is pulled from from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And these are each state. So where is New Hampshire? Let's see. Um, right here is Vermont. And, oh, I'm sure. But yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I don't see it either. Um, I will ask John Mendeloff why he has no. Uh, well, there are actually states that for a long time didn't. But look at that pattern. What does that pattern tell you? That's not a random distribution. So it looks like the states that have high fatal injury rates have very low non-fatal injury rates. What do you think is easier to hide? So, and then it's worth looking at what are the ones down here? Louisiana, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, 
Arizona, Texas, New York. Hmm. Um, so the ones with, you know, that uh, down here in the, the discrepant quadrant are interesting states from an occupational health perspective. And Bob could do a talk about occupational health in the Texas Miracle or in Oklahoma where they've decided to defund workers' comp. Employers can opt out of workers' compensation and say, I'm going to pay you $10 for a hand amputation because I'm self-insured and you want to come work for me, that's what we'll do. Just to make sure that you realize it isn't a one-off, um, the next, the 2006 to 2008 found the same um, general pattern. And so the question becomes, are there standards and do people follow them? You know, who sets standards and how do they happen? So the Joint Commission OSHA split has been around for many years and people in management who have to deal with Joint Commission and accreditation um, know um, and think about, you know, there was the time where you could plan for Joint Commission visits and um, hospitals shifted into gear and there were designated people who helped you prep for the visit. Mm -hmm. And those are, as I understand it, now random. So there is continuous readiness and that was the goal. And OSHA has always done surprise inspections, although employers have the right to say no. And then OSHA has to get a warrant. So um, worker safety, OSHA 1970, um, it develops some standards and then it enforces those standards. And it does those, it enforces those, we'll talk more about this in a minute, by either enforcing a specific standard like the bloodborne pathogen standard or the general duty clause. All employers must provide a healthy and safe workplace for their employees. Patient safety, but OSHA only does systems. It regulates employers. The Joint Commission, you all know better than I, you know, there is a standards development piece, there's the whole accreditation visiting system, and then there's the Joint Commission resources and newsletters and encouragement, but not the hammer of um, Joint Commission scores. So when OSHA visits a place, there is a standard way of citing employers. Actually, let me just ask, has anybody here been part of an OSHA inspection? Anybody? So, oh, actually, so fair number. Um, so when the compliance officer shows up, usually not someone who knows much about healthcare because they are far more familiar with foundries and um, the noise-induced hearing loss or silicosis from that or the asthma from, a t from an isocyanate plant, they have to look to see whether there's a specific standard, um, for example, the bloodborne pathogen standard, and if that standard applies, is there evidence that there was a violation, that employees were actually expo exposed to that violative condition, and the employer knew or should have known for whatever reason. And there are employer defenses against that. There is a general duty clause, and we'll get to what OSHA has been doing under this clause in a while. Is there a hazard? Does the employer know or should have known what that hazard was, is the hazard serious, and are there feasible means of abatement? Can you fix the problem? <coughs> Wrong button, sorry. So over the last few um, years, OSHA has actually done a bunch of general duty clause citations. Um, there were 35 in healthcare, 17 in residential mental health facilities, three in visiting nurse home health agencies and five in hospitals and 62 hazard alert letters where we sent letters to places and said, we think you're doing bad things. Um, so five citations in hospitals, when you think about all of the not-for-profit and for-profit hospitals, isn't such a big deal. Um, we do have um, an initiative underway right now looking at ergonomics, musculoskeletal disease and injury. Um, and that is really, it started with nursing homes a while ago. And there is a nursing home national emphasis program. So every one of our 90 area offices has to do at least three nursing homes each year. 
And of those, and then there is separately an ergonomics initiative. In those years, 2012, 2013, 14, and 15, there were respectively 211 to 190 nursing homes that were inspected. There were overall um, that many ergonomic inspections. In those, we sent you know, hazard alert letters, you're doing something bad, to somewhere between a quarter and a third of the facilities and cited a number of places for ergonomics. Um, to my knowledge, no hospital has been cited, although there was an effort to cite one of the VA hospitals for not following their own rules. Um, so beginning last July, there was a separate from the nursing home initiative, a hospital initiative a hospital and nursing home initiative. And we've done this many um, inspections. So either unprogrammed, we pull a random data set and inspect, or because of complaints. And it's not clear to me why we can do both, but sometimes people file a complaint once we're already in there. And of those, there were some hazard alert letters you didn't do anything that we can cite you for, but you could do better in some nursing homes, but none yet in hospitals, including not in that one VA that we tried. We did look recently at bloodborne pathogens citations. 1990, the bloodborne pathogen standard was published. Um, OSHA has done 31,000 inspections in healthcare and other industries, you know. Um, where bloodborne pathogens come up. Uh, so, for example, there are times in, in corrections institutions where there are complaints around bloodborne pathogens. And those of you who remember the bloodborne pathogens training that you should have gotten, actually, this, let me not ask who remembers, but if you do that, there is an exposure control plan that a hospital reviews every year, so they're supposed to look at their SHARPS incidents and figure out what they could do differently. There is, um, you know, compliance controls. Are they um, controlling those hazards appropriately? Are the lab um, and production elements followed? What's the story on hepatitis B and post-exposure um, prophylaxis adequacy? Um, are there, is there adequate communication with workers about this? And what's the story on the record keeping? So are people recording correctly whether um, people you know, wound up with an injury that led to lost time? And the five periods, the time periods, are from 1990 to 95. 95 to 2000, 2000 to 2000. So five five-year periods in different colors. And if you look carefully at this, you can see that um, it looks like, oh, and this is the percentage of visits that led to a citation under that specific paragraph. So for controls, the lab, there really wasn't much, the hepatitis B, and communication, there's not clearly a change, but um, it looks like increasingly there are record-keeping violations for which we've cited facilities, meaning either our compliance officers have figured out how to cite or facilities are not recording injuries in the way we think they should be. And by the same token, the exposure control plan, although the CDC has a workbook on how to do this. And although every infection control department has you know, a Sharps injury log access and can look at events, um, it's not clear that they take the data from the Sharps injury log, create a team, and look at what could be done to reduce the hazards. Having worked as a dialysis technician and having had hepatitis B in the years before um, the vaccine was available. This is actually a pretty, pretty striking thing. 
that people aren't doing, nationally, aren't doing what they could do. So, in general, have people done something about this, and have they been successful? So, as we think about this, the root cause analysis and intervention stuff is really the same and has been the same in the world of safety forever. You know, um, as I understand it, um, really the, the airline industry, aircraft, came up with safety management procedures in the 50s. It, in the world of pilots, you hear that people could recognize where there were airfields, even in the 50s, by the columns of smoke that you could see, because airplane crashes were just very common. And people who have heard Jim Bajan talk about patient safety know um, his famous story, namely that the reason the FAA implemented their anonymized reporting system was that pilots were fired for telling the truth when there was an error. And they would then lose their livelihood. And so one of the early core beliefs in patient safety was you had to have anonymous reporting. Because if there was any threat of punishment, people would not report. If you got punished for reporting what you did wrong, you couldn't expect people to say, you know, prep school taught us we should always do this. But in the real world, you have a family to, if you think you're going to get fired, you're just not going to report. So the FAA came up with an anonymized reporting system that was critical to the reduction of problems in the airline industry. Jim Bajan tells the story that it was invented because there was an error in the electronic system that told patients where they were. And there were a few crashes that nobody had identified, but it turned out that one pilot was in this one zone that led to amb ambiguous placement, and the clouds lifted, and he was flying at a mountain. And there wasn't supposed to be a mountain there. So he put a notice on the local blackboard saying, if you see these coordinates, make sure you're not in the wrong place. That story spread, and it took a few years for the FAA to change its system. But that is one of the, that was the first anonymized system. Root cause analysis as a safety process has been around for a long time. Fundamentally, what should have, what happened, what should have happened, what's the difference, are the basic questions. And let me just ask, who here has done either patient safety training, root cause analysis training, or you know, some form of after-action intervention? So about two-thirds of you. So fundamentally, that approach, however you want to la label it, is part of a system of fixing things. And at OSHA nowadays, we call it the Injury and Illness Prevention Program, I2P2. But there are you know, tons of names for this. Um, they are all flexible, common sense, proven tools to find and fix hazards before injuries, illnesses, or deaths occur. And the core elements are the same across all systems. Whether they are called the same thing, sometimes there are four elements, sometimes there are seven, you know, but fundamentally, they require management leadership, they require worker participation, you know, OSHA believes in management of labor. Um, they rely on hazard identification and, and control. Um, there's education and training. Sorry, you're right. We have recently switched from hazard identification and control to hazard identification and assessment and hazard prevention and control. So, you know, people shuffle names. Um, but the bottom line is these systems are important. So has anybody done anything like this? And are there data that tell us that these work? So a few years ago, when I was still at VHA, we worked with the Joint Commission and developed a monograph on improving patient and worker safety. Um, and the slides will be around the monograph. Oh, sorry. The monograph um, URL is on there. It was the first attempt, from what I can tell, to actually formalize the things that we think of as models. Um, but there are 
the groups that participated in developing that included some well-known groups around the country, Ascension Health, um, the, a hospital in, in Connecticut, who, and there are examples in there, um, a group that had started with high reliability organizations and wound up you know, creating um, a separate set of management principles that would, um, that led to improved performance. And then in the monograph, there are examples of musculoskeletal injuries, really the VA program is in there, Sharp's injuries and infection transmission prevention, um, some things on hazardous drugs, chemicals, and radiation, two different elements of violence prevention, and some staffing and fatigue. So that was the monograph as a toolkit for people to go. More recently, OSHA and CMS have aligned to put together some tools and materials. On the OSHA website, there is the whole kind of roadmap, but CMS has funded hospital engagement networks, what are called HINs, um, that include Ascension Health, some state hospital associations, and in fact, um, they have now published a model, as we think about models of joint patient safety um, and employee safety, and sorry, yes, the, the, this is taken from our website, and so it's a, um, it's a blown up thing that should be smaller, but the patient, National Patient Safety Foundation, CMS, OSHA, and HCP um, have, you know, this is the, the current model we all believe in. Um, so there are ways to map this and to think about where you want to intervene. And in, oh, this is not going to go well. So the first year of successes, um, right, so I can't read this from this far away. Um, but they went at um, patient handling, at staff turnover, at um, days away and restricted duty, and at hand hygiene. And all of them document, even within the first year, some, um, some improvement. Not dramatic improvement, but some improvement. So, and this is now um, a little kind of leftover stuff from the VA, two slides on our data system. When I joined the VA in 1999, it became clear that the VA didn't have a national safety employee safety data system. And so one of the first things we did was create um, the assist system. And that, those of you who worked at the VA in the early 2000s may remember the whining and complaining. Um, sorry about that. But it was really useful. And it is, in fact, what got us um, $208 million in this year. Um, but Audrey Nelson you know, started the, looked at all of the workers' comp injuries in the Tampa VA, assembled a national expert panel, and wound up getting a HSRD grant to do a biomechanics lab to look at the redesigned patient transfer um, techniques. There was a, um, a demonstration project in Florida, South Georgia, and we put together a, a book appeared together with the Defense Department. And then actually from then on um, escalated with the Defense Department trying to get our respective leadership to buy on. So the Army Chief of Staff and the VA Undersecretary for Health kind of competed. They were both old military generals and you know they didn't want to be bested. Um, and so these are the injury rates, the manual handling injury rates among nurses and among all staff. And despite somebody on my staff got hired in 2005 to do voluntary reporting, injury rates continued to climb for a few years. But um, certainly by the time I left, there was a, a almost 50% decline in patient handling injuries among nurses. And that rate has continued to drop. So there are some things you can do even in a large, relatively gooey, inefficient system like the VA, violence in healthcare is a big problem. And if you remember that slide, that's the one thing that is clearly still going up 
in certain segments. And we had done a similar thing um, around violence, kind of identifying risk factors and developing a system. Um, the, for those of you who have worked in the VA system and know the CPRS system, there's that little flag that shows up. Every VA hospital has to have a committee, a disruptive behavior committee, that is chaired by someone who has gone through a mini residency to do threat assessment. And every patient who assaults someone in the VA system gets looked at in that DBC. And there's a note behind the flag on what should happen with that patient. So there are systems, there are ways of fixing this. And so if you define problems, you can solve those problems. They have led to cost reductions um, in healthcare. They have improved patient safety and staff safety. And the problem solving follows pretty standard procedures. I think that was the last slide. You would ask that I leave enough time for um, discussion. Great. Thank you. It is open for questions. Wonderful introduction of such an important topic. Questions for our guests? Yes. So working in long-term care for many years, what we find is that there's a lot of underreporting, or absolutely no reporting, certainly of, of assaults related to patients with dementia. And um, we actually find that the training of nurses is, is literally absent in terms of, uh, of, of managing patients with dementia. There's some things out there, but I, I wondered if you, um, you know, would comment on that or your experience. So, so there are data on what you can do. Mm -hmm. There are actually some formal studies that have looked not just at assaults, but also patient handling and the interactions. Um, you know, at the 50,000 foot level, it's a problem. At the individual system level, the question becomes, what are the drivers for assaults in that system? Do we staff, do we train, do we have technology? and? If I were in a long-term care facility or were the medical director or the consultant to a long-term care facility, you know, the traditional way to do that is to look at individual incidents and try and think, what is my problem? Is it that the nursing assistants or health techs um, don't know how to approach a patient and tell them what they're going to do? Is it that they haven't been, um, they don't have the time or the patience to do that? And is there an, a behavior issue there? And you know, when you look at large versus small nursing homes, that's actually a common issue. We were, Bob and I were talking about this yesterday. We've each had parents in nursing homes with very different experiences. And, uh, my view is the smaller the facility, the more interaction there is between staff and patients. And so they know each other better, and there's less problem. But in fact, so there's the, is there training? Is there time and staffing? Then there's the, is there equipment? So um, if these are, um, these are facilities where there are bedridden patients, where dependency is high, and you have to do transfers, whether it's for toileting or for something else, for which you need equipment. Do they have the training to help patients understand what's going to happen? And so, you know, at the individual level, there is stuff to do. There are, um, for safe patient handling, there's a nursing, a nursing school curriculum now that the Tampa VA developed with the CDC. No such curriculum exists for violence prevention. So it's a, you know, I don't know 
Yeah, Thanks for asking the yeah, question. We've done some things and here, actually. The Geriatric Education Center uh, made some videos, and again, but it's not very, you know, widespread and fun um, that these things are <clears throat> disseminated. And have you <clears throat> been, to, are you in the Grec, in the VA Grec, or is no, there a no, Dartmouth? this is the HRSA, Geriatric okay. Education Center. So, so have you looked at whether that's effective? In some small studies, so we've looked at, again, nurses' aides who actually watch the videos. Of, so we have videos of, you know, dementia patients acting out and, and how nurses' aides, you know, behavior and what happens. So we do find it's in, in, in some small studies that if they do watch the videos that actually they learn better how to approach patients or when a patient yeah. is very agitated, what to do. Um, but it's not very widespread. And... Like I said before, I mean, there's just so much underreporting, and I think, you know, um, back to uh, nurses' aides and, you know, in the nursing homes, um, in terms of fear of losing their job, that maybe they did the wrong thing with a patient, they underreport because, as you know, the, the regulations in nursing homes are such that um, very often nursing homes will, you know, uh, uh, suspend someone or fire someone um, in. It, as a result of a state inspection whereby a patient maybe uh, had an injury, um, but the, the staff was injured. Um, so, so it's pretty complicated. Right. It's, it's and once those nursing aides go mm -hmm. on the National Registry, they no longer have a means of livelihood. Right. Yeah. I just want to follow up one thing there before I get to you, Kathy. Yesterday, I think it was, I was driving in and listening to NPR and I think it was in the morning, but it, there was the, a patient who was the son of a physician who had manic depressive disorder, who was in a hospital, not on a psychiatric ward, and was acting out, coming out of his room naked, doing crazy things, and the nurses felt overwhelmed, so they called security instead of calling his psychiatrist or his clinician who was taking care of him. And, in that hospital system, they had off-duty police acting as security at times, and in this particular situation, the police came in and they had their uniforms on, which also involved having a gun, which isn't allowed on psychiatric wards, but in a medical ward, it was allowed. And unfortunately, in the whole turmoil of whatever went on, behind closed doors, this young man was shot in the chest. <laughs> and nearly died and they had the whole expose sort of on NPR I don't know if you've heard it but it's there to hear it but it showed a lot of different failings obviously in the systems wherever first placing the patient in a safe environment for his needs and then this whole issue of external people who may or may not be under the same aegis of training and then to have a law enforcement force it was all those things but in thinking of the violence question about towards staff, there's also this issue of violence towards patients. And it usually is in the mental health arena where there's such undertraining, unless you're in that field. And I just, I, I wanted to reflect on that because it follows this, this the, the thing that you just brought up, but it gets to where is the full thinking in institutions and just how complicated all of this is. Bob has a huge purview as you do, did and do, I mean, there are all these large amounts of things you have to take into consideration. And so it's an interesting example. The staff on that medical ward may have known that there was a mental health problem, but they may not have had, you know, in the VA system, there would have been clinical guidance. They would have been forced, and they would have had to have opened that flag and known what are the and what are the management behaviors? Yeah. But, Kathy? I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the um, injuries related to the use of computers and both the physical um, injuries, ergonomic injuries, specifically related to typing and yeah. interacting with the medical record, and also whether there's any attention to the uh, sort of mental health aspects of the amount of information that comes at people electronically, whether there are any things that are being looked at to try to put in safety um, guidance 
around those things. I know Bob and I have talked about that over the years. Let me do two different responses to that. So computer, so um, computer ergonomic whatever hazards are clearly a huge issue. When BHA went to the mandatory national electronic system in 2001, CPRS became you know mandatory. Everybody had to use it. Um, can't remember whether it was January one or not. But you know, many places didn't have flat screen monitors yet. They had the old fashioned terminals. Nobody had, lots of people didn't have keyboard trays. You couldn't do reverse tilt. Um, and we actually had a fourfold increase in carpal tunnel syndrome workers comp claims in a two year period among doctors and nurses. Um, and it was, a, um, it was an interesting thing to encounter and trying to get a big system to acknowledge that you know, sitting in a national office, um, trying to push stuff out to hospitals, clearly it's a problem. There are solutions to that. So Dragon Medical, you know, um, I'm a deep advocate of that. It, you can now, hospital systems will let you move your, your tool from system to system. There's a, you know, an, you can store your, your, um, whatever they call it now, the thing, you know, your personalized library um, online. And so you can move from machine to machine and log in and use your correct stuff. So um, Dragon Medical is, with a headset, a great solution for the ergonomic problem. There are, you know, in healthcare, is it, are there privacy issues, you know? So there are issues like that. Clearly, ergonomics is a huge issue. It is, it has been solved in most places. So it's not clear to me why there shouldn't be trays and reverse tilt and flat panel monitors and movability. And if that's an issue, it's worth kind of doing careful walk-arounds and looking and seeing where things could be improved. Nowadays, it's really not so hard. Um, the issue of information flow is a far more difficult thing. And you know, Google Glass, there have been some efforts to, to expedite and simplify communications. Um, I don't know who here has played with Google Glass and the integration of systems, but um, Columbus had one of the early Google Glass users was an occupational physician actually at, at Ohio State, now at Mount Sinai, and had helped work on a model to ease communication so that you didn't actually have to go to a computer. You could you know, talk to your neurology consultant in the ED through Google Glass and not have to. But it's, it is information overload. And trying to figure out what the algorithms are that you use internally to manage information. You know, I'm no longer a clinician. I have to acknowledge that that goes way beyond what I can think about. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the topic of the violence within the VA, you mentioned the use of education. Is, that, is there any component of the education that's dedicated to the patient? is working with that he or she in, in terms of having them learn about the violence without making it a plain or shame situation? It's a great question. Actually, the Bedford VA had a, has a series of projects looking at community meetings as an intervention strategy. Um, that was, I know that was, that had been running for about a year when I left. I don't know where that is now. Um, I don't know. I don't know where that is now. So given the relative potency of the Joint Commission compared to OSHA, <laughs> the way it's funded, the way it's paid attention to, uh, you know, is there any kind of formal, other than that one monograph you mentioned, is there any formal efforts on the part of OSHA to actually use the apparatus that the the TJC to kind of accomplish some more of these occupational health safety initiatives. 
We have an alliance with the Joint Commission that was restarted about six months ago. Um, there are conversations. Um, you know, I am, although I have wanted this job forever, um, there are some things that I think are not so useful for healthcare. So OSHA standards are relatively inflexible things. I love the bloodborne pathogen standard for a variety of reasons, but really it only enforces what CDC and formalizes what CDC would expect you to do. And so as such, it's been very effective. Would an, would an OSHA ergonomic standard be good? Well, when you look at um, you know, the ergonomic standard that was promulgated in 2000 was repealed quite quickly. And there's a prohibition against our doing another ergonomic standard. Could the Joint Commission promulgate an ergonomic standard? After all, the Facility Guidelines in, Institute, the successor to the American Institute of Architects, has design criteria for safe patient handling. Mary Matz on my staff actually wrote those. The ANA has a professional standard on safe patient handling. So nurses know what they should do. It's not that there are many questions. What makes the Joint Commission promulgate a new standard? It's a great question. I asked that a week ago, and somebody you know, sent me to their head of standards development, and I don't yet have an answer. I wonder whether they shouldn't have it. Because when you look at the environment of care standards and the Joint Commission, I actually think they're looser now than they used to be. So people who remember the EC standards back from the early 2000s, you know, they required a specific data system. They had very detailed, not very detailed, but far more detailed kind of elements that you had to meet. You no longer have to have that. They're, they're a far more flexible, collaborative thing than OSHA. And so I know within the VA, we liked the structure of Joint Commission standards far more than OSHA standards. So I think healthcare would be better off if healthcare facilities went to the Joint Commission and said, let's get a ergo standard under the Joint Commission rather than having OSHA do one. We'll see where that goes. Do you have a final question? I, I do. I just wonder if you briefly speak to safety culture. Uh, National Patient Safety Forum suggested this be a priority. We know from the ARC surveys you know, what the results are in their hospitals. Has anyone ever looked to see if that actually correlates with employee safety? If you have a good culture around patients. It's a great question. Actually, there is one paper. Um, appeared about a year ago um, some, from a thing we looked at. Um, if you look, David Moore, MOHR from the Boston VA, um, looked at a bunch of our data systems and found a pretty strong correlation. So it used to be that we thought, you know, um, people who really cared about patients wouldn't care about their own safety. And there was, that was a problem because if you don't take care of yourself, you know, you can't take care of your patients. Um, in the, the 2012 data in the VA say there is a very clear relationship. People who care about patient safety care about employee safety and the cultural awareness, you know, non-punitive, collaborative, um, admitting errors, that focus um, clearly worked there. Whether safety culture is prominent in any, in any individual organization is a function of that organization's culture. And so, I mean, I don't know Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So walking through the halls here, I was blown away by you know, the way people look, the way people act. It's a very, very nice place. <laughs> Let me acknowledge, I've never worked on a place like this. You know, University of Pittsburgh faculty, uh, no, sorry, back in the 80s, that was not like this. Um, pimping and, you know, I mean, it was just, and at, the, at UConn, clearly, I mean, it was a little nicer than Pittsburgh. The physical facilities were a little nicer than Pittsburgh, but, you know, so, 
it feels like a place that could have a fabulous safety culture, but do people feel comfortable admitting error? Is there a way they can do that when, you know, in morbidity and mortality, I don't know what the term here is, but when people look at that, can, do, people feel people, do, feel people com do people feel comfortable saying, ooh, that was my mistake? Um, you know, that's a hard thing to do. That requires felt leadership on the ground to go there. Um, and that's not common in healthcare. I mean, certainly not in internal medicine, you know? I mean, we're proud of not making mistakes. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. What is the safety we, culture here? We do have a robust morbidity, mortality, and improvement conference. We put the end improvement uh -huh. on about two years ago because it is a quality improvement effort by reviewing the cases. So it's an intellectual pursuit. But it's also, a, a, it is a comfortable environment. The room here is filled, and people have a very active exchange. And what could we do differently on a systems level? What could we do differently in yeah. each of the interactions? And then the hope is that we identify some things from that that then get worked on for improvement. Yeah. So we do, I think, have that. And, and Bob, of course, rides herd over a lot larger complex of, of uh, making sure we have a culture of safety here, and I, and I think that we do, and we keep trying to improve on that. I think because of the hour, I'm going to, on behalf of all of us, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Think this through. Good work. Huh.